Well, you're going to go ahead and uh, turn to Joshua chapter 23. Uh, Joshua 23, we are quickly rounding to the end of Joshua. Uh, we'll, we'll look at Joshua 23 today, and then uh, in the next two weeks, we'll finish up the book of Joshua, looking at, uh, the, at chapter 24 uh, next Sunday and the following. Um, but today, as, as you turn there, as you get ready, as we pick up in Joshua chapter 23, where we are, are, are picking up at is the people of Israel have come into the land that God has promised to them. And he has faithfully given them all that he has promised in the land of Canaan, all the way back to Abraham, promising to give them this land for an inheritance. And the fighting on a large scale has come to an end, and the people are, uh, we've seen it several times, we'll see it again today, that there's this idea that the land and the people of Israel have come to a place of rest. Uh, so that, that, that struggling over, that strife over the land has, has come to a halt and the people are now living in the inheritance that God has given to them. Uh, and last week in, in chapter 22, we saw that there was a kind of a near miss as uh, the two and a half tribes that lived on the, on the east side of the river built an altar that the people on the west side misunderstood, uh, and, and they, they sorted things out. And now, once again, in chapter 23, we come to a place where they're at rest, and we're going to see uh, really simply, we're going to walk through this. The, in, in a lot of ways, chapter 23 gives us a summary overview of what God has been telling Telling his people in the Old Testament, what, like this is, sums up who they are supposed to be, again in 16 simple verses, uh, just a, a summary fashion of what the people of Israel are supposed to do now as they move forward in this covenant relationship with the Lord in the land that he has given to them. And, and, it, and it, these two, last two chapters flow together because it also comes at a point where Joshua is coming close to the end of his life, and so there's about to be another transition point for the people of Israel. If you remember all the way back to Joshua chapter 1, the transition is Moses has just died, and Joshua takes the reins of leadership, and now Joshua is coming to the close of his life, and he's issuing commands for the people of Israel to follow. Um, as we work through this, what we're, we're going to highlight, um, there are three commands that Joshua is going to give to the people of Israel that really are abiding commands for God's people in every generation. Um, and, and if we want to say it's, it's the commands of how God's people are to walk with a holy God in right relationship. Uh, so if you will look at Joshua chapter 23 with me, uh, or it's on the screen if you would prefer to follow it there. Joshua 23, starting in verse 1. It says, A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, 
turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. Now we start in, in verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5 kind of are going to paint the context for the rest of the chapter, for the rest of what we're going to deal with this morning. And we come back again to this place. Israel has come to a place of rest because God has given it to them. Joshua is old and he's well advanced in years, so for 40 some odd years he has been leading the people of Israel from in the wilderness to now a place of rest, and he has seen God's faithfulness, not only to him, but to all of the people of Israel. And so now he's, he's highlighting, he's drawing them to himself, saying, hey, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, which in other words means I'm about to die. So these are the things that you need to know. Just as Moses had restated the law for the people before he passed, now Joshua does the same thing. thing. But what we'll notice in the next two weeks or three weeks, the one glaring difference between Joshua's transition and Moses' transition is when Moses transitioned, Moses knew who was going to lead the people next. And even he was commanded, tell, like, set Joshua above at the head of the people. What we'll notice in the next three weeks is that at no point does Joshua appoint the next person. And if we were to track along into the book of Judges, we'll see why this that doesn't always play out really well. But it, part of the reason why is because they are now at rest. They don't need somebody to lead them into the promises of God. That has happened. What they need now is to continue to walk in God's faithfulness where he has planted them. And so within this, we see in verse 3, Joshua refers back to all of God's past promises that he has brought to pass. He says, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who fought for you. 
When Joshua's doing this, he is drawing the people's attention back to remember all of the ways that God has faithfully fulfilled his word to them. He does this again. It's highlighted at the end of the chapter in verse 14. And he says, you know in your hearts and your souls, all of you, all of the good things that God has caused to pass for you. Now, if we just stop there really quickly, we're going to come back and draw to application in a bit. But, but it, have you ever taken a moment and stopped and said, how has God been faithful to me in what he has said? Have you ever just taken stock of your life in Christ and said, what has he done? What did he promise to do and what has he done to bring it to pass? If you started all the way, you and I have the benefit of having his revealed word to us to where we can go back all the way to creation and say, how has God been faithful to his people from the foundation of the earth? And if you just were to to start walking through the biblical narrative and seeing God's faithfulness, but then you begin to walk through your own life, how has he been faithful to you? Is this an exercise that you have ever done? Thanksgiving is what, next week? Many of you will gather around the table and you say, what are you thankful for? And the kids will be like, I'm thankful for turkey, just let us eat, right? Uh, I'm thankful for the food, please. Like, do we have, we have to do this again? I, I'm thankful for our family, right? And that'll be the kid's cop-out because one of the other kids said family, so then the next kid was like, I'm thankful for a family too. And like, they'll, they'll just cheat off of each other. But if you ever stop to go, what has he faithfully done? And then not only does Joshua call them to say, what, this is all of the ways that he has faithfully brought you into this land. You have seen him fight for you, right? If they just, if we just walked back through the book of Joshua, this is how God showed up and fought for his people. The walls of Jericho fell down. The, the, the Jordan River was stopped up above, so they crossed on dry land. He caused the sun to stand still in the sky. He delivered 32 kings into their hands and, and, like, and delivered all of their cities into the hands of the people of Israel so that they're now living in places that they didn't cultivate. Like they're, they're experiencing the goodness of God's hand in everything that they do. He's calling them, think about this. This is, this is why God has fought for you. And then in verse 5, he refers to God's yet future promises. He says, the Lord your God will push these other nations, the remnant, the remainders. He will push them back before you, and he will drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. There's very good likelihood that somebody is sitting here this morning going like, well, I am, I am, I am waiting to see how God is going to faithfully provide in this. And, and I just encourage you, and maybe this, this might not sound like encouragement, The way that God will faithfully provide for you in the thing that you are waiting may not be the way you want him to provide faithfully. And how he faithfully brings you through it may not be the way that you would choose it on a multiple choice questionnaire where it goes and you see God's faithful provision without any suffering. Like, we would all opt for that if it was our choice. And yet on the back end, in the rear view, you will look and you will say, I've seen the faithfulness of the Lord in this, even though that really hurt, and even though I would never want to do it again. And yet, how, like, there are, there are yet things that we are trusting that the Lord will faithfully do. And, and as we walk through this morning, why can we trust Him confidently for those things that we are waiting in? That might be the question you're waiting, like, that you're wrestling over this morning. How can I know for certain that God will faithfully bring me through this circumstance? 
How am I going to see this play out? How is he possibly going to do anything good or faithful in this? And I want to encourage you, this is why Joshua starts with verse 3. This is the way that God has fought for you and faithfully provided for you in all of the things in the past. One of the ways that we know God will provide in the future is we look back and we go, He has always been faithful before. That, that kind of helps a little bit. Now, think about this. If you, if, I don't know if you were one of those lucky people that got to learn to swim by being just thrown into water. Or if you ever were on a, on a slide or on a diving board and somebody, or on the, uh, somebody was in the water and said, you can trust me, jump in. The first time you ever do this, right, what do you have to work on? Hopefully, it's usually a parent that's saying, jump in. Why would you possibly jump into a body of water when you don't know how to swim or you don't know how you're going to pop back up like a cork and you don't know how you're going to make it? Why would you possibly take the leap? It could only be either the fear that they are going to drag you in if you don't do it, or more likely, you trust them because you know them outside of the water. And you know that the one who invites you to jump in is the same one who is not going to let you drown. Right? Like, if it was just a stranger there that says, hey kid, jump in. No thank you. I don't know you. God's faithfulness, His character, invites us to believe Him for those things yet not seen. And then in verses 6 through 16, so Joshua lays out, this is how God has been faithful in the past. This is what He will do in the future. And then in verses 6 through 16, He lays out both the blessing for the people if they move forward in covenant faithfulness, in verses 6 through 11. And then He also lays out for them the consequences or the curses that will be reality for them if they abandon the covenant that God has made with them. In verses 12 and 13. And this goes back to, to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29. Where it's a lot longer section of what blessing looks like and what curses and consequence look like. But what Joshua is doing is inviting them once again to the place of, Will you walk in covenant faithfulness with the Lord? Or will you choose your own direction? And he emphasizes this, we mentioned a little bit in verses 14 through 16, he emphasizes this by saying, I'm about to die, so therefore you need to start making up your mind what you're going to do once I'm not here to to be with you. And he begins by again saying them, you know in your hearts and your souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. In other words, like what might motivate you to continue to walk with him in a right way? He says, you know to your inner person, like in the core, in your heart of hearts, you know by experience how he has brought you faithfully to this place. Everything that he has said, all of them, all of the good things have come to pass for you and not one of them has failed. But then he throws that On the pendulum in verse 15, he says, but just in the same way, the Lord is equally capable of delivering all of the consequences that he promised when you were outside of the land of promise. If you break faith with him, those same nations that he promised to drive out from in front of you in verse 13, if you don't follow him in faith, 
Know for certain that he will no longer drive out those nations before you, but they'll become a snare to you. And it all hinges on that one little word that we probably all love in verse 16. If. If. If you transgress the covenant, this is what you can expect. But if you walk with him in faithfulness, this is what you can expect. So if you transgress the covenant... You go and serve, which implies going and serving other gods, bowing down to them, adopting the practices and the worship of the people around them, which is highlighted in in verse 12 by making marriages with them, associating with them, clinging to them, holding on to them. So he sets before them a choice all over again, the same choice that Moses laid before them when the law was given. Will you... Follow the Lord with all of your heart, or will you run after something else? And this is what you can reasonably expect in either direction. Now, where I want to spend the rest of the time and the highlight of our time is the three commands that Joshua gives in order to walk in covenant faithfulness. I'm going to assume for a moment, and maybe this is a dangerous assumption, I'm going to assume for a moment that if if we lay these two options in front of us as the church of God meeting this morning, as the local body of believers, that our decision, our collective desire would be to walk with the Lord in covenant faithfulness. Rather than, now I think as a group we would like to breach faith with the Lord and do our own thing. right? So we're going to highlight on what does it then look like to walk with the Lord in the way that he calls And I want to start, before we get into the three commands, I want to first start with, these commands are a response to an initial entry into the relationship. And I say that because if we, if I just lay out for you three commands and tell you to do these three things, but I unhitch it from a right response to Jesus by faith in what he has done, you're going in unprepared to do what he's actually calling you to do. And so the first thing, what makes somebody or what draws somebody into the covenant or a right relationship with the Lord in the first place? Now, in the Old Testament, it was a decision to take on or to adopt a following of the Lord, which was expressed in keeping the law. But it was a decision to identify, to abandon all other gods and to take the Lord God of Israel as their only God. That's why you see Rahab abandons the gods of Canaan and she it comes in by faith. We've heard what your God can do. I'm following him. Comes in by faith to follow the God of Israel. The people of Gibeon, even a little bit deceptive, but they've heard what God is doing and say, we would rather make a covenant with you than do this to be standing in opposition against you. Now, in the New Testament, what brings somebody into a right relationship? And and when I say the New Testament, what we're talking about is how does God bring about the fulfillment of all of those promises in the Old Testament? How do they come to bear in the New Testament? And why are we gathering here in a local church that is not a Jewish synagogue? Or why are we not centered around tabernacle practices? Because... Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came and fulfilled all of the Old Testament law. So in in the Old Testament, the law was built around, it was still built around the, the, the blood of animals that are being used to cover the sins of people. But the book of Hebrews lays it out that the problem with that is that those sacrifices were offered 
perpetually. In other words, they were constantly having to provide sacrifices because the blood of sheep and goats by itself doesn't take away sin. It was the people's faith that God would hear them. God would respond when they offered right sacrifice with a right heart. Right? So that's why in the Old Testament, sometimes he says, well, do I care about your sacrifices? He's the one who instituted them. So why would he say through the prophets at times, I don't care what you bring? Because it wasn't just about, we killed our sheep, now let's go back to sinning. Right? The heart was still connected to worship. But in the same way that they offered sheep and goats perpetually, Hebrews tells us, now Jesus is the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, who has taken on the sins of people and has died on their behalf. So your sin and my sin was laid on Jesus. And he died the death that you and I deserve to die for our sin. That's a really fancy way of saying all of the ways that we pursue ourselves and anything other than the Lord in the way that he has designed us to respond to him. Every person on the planet designed to know God and to walk with him. Every person on the planet left to their own devices does not walk with the Lord and serve him in the way that he designed and created us to do. But God, in his great love for us, sends his eternal son to die for us to restore a relationship with him. So the very first entry point is, for you and for me, this is really important for us. If I were to say to you that the life of a Christian is marked by following Jesus, would would that be fair? Okay, following is not passive. Following is not past tense. One of my great concerns for us is that we can say, yeah, I made a decision to follow Jesus, and then it's all past tense. I followed him. I chose to follow him. In the same way, when Jesus says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. And I would say, I picked up my cross. That was heavy. Okay, I took it up. Remember that time where I distinctively, I said, that's a good idea. Moved on. It's not just a one time going, hey, that makes sense. Jesus came to die for sinful people. It is an active following. If I were to, if you said, hey, you're going to follow me in your car to Kalispell. And I said, that sounds really good. You take off. You make it to Whiskey Hill, you look in your rearview mirror, you go, where is that guy? And I'm at home. I said, I'm following you. No, you're not. If you were following me, where would you be? Behind me. If you invite somebody to work with you and you say, follow me and do what I do, okay. And then you turn around like, we were chopping wood. Where did he go? And because I'm, I'm still kind of, I'm just barely squeaked into being a millennial, I'm just sitting on a stump playing on my phone. I said, I thought you were, what? I see what you're doing. I wholeheartedly, you're doing a great job chopping wood. Is that following? No, it's not following. Following entails doing what Jesus is doing. Going where he is going. Saying what he would be saying. Actively following. And one of the great, I think one of the great lies that our culture has sold us is that we are a follower of Jesus if we made a decision or we prayed a prayer one time in our life. And yet there is no active following. 
It's not about the prayer that we prayed. It's not about the water that we went in and came out of. It is about following Jesus. Because he's the one who took our place. So then the question is, okay, how does one follow Jesus? Rather than how does one just understand, confess with their mouth that Jesus is the Son of God and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead and then follow him. Three commands that Joshua gives that I think tie directly into what it means to follow Jesus for you and for me. And they're interrelated. This is not, hey, I'm going to lay out three for you. You pick the one you like the best. Nor was it for Joshua when he laid them out for the people of Israel in Joshua chapter 23. The first thing he commands them that I believe is is the command then, it's the command now. He says in verse 6, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. If I were to summarize this, I would say, keep God's word. You know, what does that mean to keep God's word? You see the idea of it play out in Joshua. When he, so he says, be very strong in keeping it. That's kind of an interesting thing. Does, is he talking about doing a fumble drill with the, with, with the Bible? So I'm keeping God's word and no one will get this. Th- I'm keeping it. I'm guarding it. Is that what he's talking about? No, not so much. But what he is talking about, he says, keep, keep, be very strong, and this is what it looks like to be very strong in it. He says, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. In other words, obeying it, doing it, following it, in, t- in an intentional pursuit of the Lord and his word. In James chapter 1, as soon as I read this, you go, ah, I know this chapter, this, this section. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. James chapter 1, 22 through 25. James says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. What does James say? He's saying, don't just, you do need to hear the word in order to do the word. But he says, don't just hear it and not do it. So doing the word means that we actually put feet to the things that Jesus tells us to do in his word. It also means we don't depart from it. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. Notice he says, don't turn to the right hand or to the left from it. The the, the keeping God's word means that we adopt God's word as the boundaries and the constraining device in our life. That we go where the word tells us to go and we don't go where the word tells us not to go. We accept the things that the Word tells us to accept, and we abandon the things that the Word tells us not to accept. And the Word becomes our rule of life and practice. And you might be this morning going like, this is elementary. But I want to ask you a question. If you just survey the world that we live in, is that a normal view of God's Word? That we should do what it says we should do, and it is our rule for life and practice. If we just if we pulled a hundred people in Libby, just pulled them at random and said, Is the word of God your rule for life and practice? 
Would you get 100 affirmative answers? If it was multiple choice, you might get, I will take it when it says what I want it to say. I will use it when it is convenient for me to prove my argument. I will use it when it, when it supports my position, but if it doesn't support my position, I will either reframe it, I will re-argue it, or I will abandon it altogether. That is the world that you and I live in. So if you are to keep God's word in the world today, even as much as it was in Joshua's day, you are adopting a worldview that makes you strange. To say that this book guides my life and my practice. It guides the way that I function as a husband or a wife. It guides the way that I function as an employee at my work. It guides the way that I parent my children. It guides the way that I respond to the government that I live under. It, re- it, it guides all that I think and all that I do. And people will look at you and say, but that's a really old book and that is foolish. And we would, like the apostle, say, where else can we go? Because this alone has the words of life. If we are to follow Jesus in faith, do we keep his word? Do we do what he says? Do we have a view of his scripture that says this is his word to his people? That in in, in doing them, there is life. Or, maybe we have a very high view of Scripture, but a very low standard of doing what it says. I believe that everything in this book is the Word of God. No, I don't know what it says. But I believe that everything in there is true. How practical will that be in your, well, as being a rule of life and practice if you believe it's His Word, but you don't know what it says? Or you know what it says but you refuse to do what it says. In order to know and to do, this has to be the treasure of our life. That's why I say it flows out of, there's no way that we would have this high of a view of God's Word. There would be no way that we would adopt it as our rule for life and and practice if we did not first believe that it revealed to us our need for Jesus and explained to us how we could be in a right relationship with the Father through the Son. Why would we have a high view of what it says about Jesus if we didn't have a relationship with Jesus? Why would we think that it reveals to us the Father if we don't really believe that the Father speaks to people through His Word? Right? So, so the Word comes out of it, flows out of it, responds to our faith in Jesus. Because in response to our faith in Jesus, here we find all that he has told us to be about and what to do. And this flows into the second command. So the first one is to keep God's word. The second one in verse 8, you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. So cling to the Lord. It's the same word, maybe your version even says it, it's the same word that is used as to cleave. And if you go, that sounds like a familiar word, it's because it's come, it, it, it first find it in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Not related to our relationship with the Lord, but in God's design for marriage. In Genesis 2, 24, after God had created all things, he created the first man and the first woman, and he, and he caused Adam to fall into sleep and, and pulled and created Eve out of his side. 
In verse 24, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's interesting that then the Lord uses this image of clinging, not just here in Joshua, but the idea and the picture of marriage is the one that, that the Lord adopts for his relationship to his people throughout the Old Testament. In talking to Israel, especially through the prophets, he refers to them over and over and over again as his bride, the one that he chose for himself, right? And the picture of adultery is in that picture of idolatry, of them running after something else. But it's interesting that in both places, in verse 8 and in Genesis 2.24, the cleaving, we, often I think we read it as it is, it is functionally the mystery of what happens when two people come to get together in marriage. That there's a mysterious cleaving that happens, and there's great effort in explaining what that looks like on a physical, emotional, spiritual level. And, and, and I'm not taking away from those things, but it's interesting that in verse 8 and in Genesis chapter 2, that it's a command, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cling. There's a twofold command. He shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Here, you shall, it's a command, you shall cling to the Lord your God. Why would he command something if it was not optional. In the sense of, if it's, if it's not an option for, jo- uh, for Joshua and the people of Israel, he says, therefore be careful in verse um, 12, if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations. They have an option of who they will cling to. Who will they cleave to? Who will they hold fast to? Who will they look to in faithful dependence? He lays it out. Will you cling to the Lord Or will you cling to anything else? Choosing the Lord above all options. Now if we use the the illustration of this that is most natural to us from Genesis chapter 2, what does it look like in marriage for a married couple to cling to each other? Not just physically like hugging each other, koala bear where they're not going to let go, But what does it look like to them to cling to one another in marriage? What choices are involved in order for them to stay committed and clinging to one another? For one, if we, if we draw this out towards the Lord, is it necessary, if you're to have a, a close, trusting, faithful relationship with your spouse, that you trust their character? Probably, like, if you don't trust your spouse, how much faithful dependence are you placing on them? Because you don't know what if, if they'll even do what you think they'll do. If there's no trust, you don't. Probably not really strong. The second one that, that we see this play out of, if you're to cling to your spouse, how easy is it to cling and to have eyes for your spouse in faithful dependence when, you, when, they're, when they're faithfully providing for you? When they are faithfully providing for you and the things that they have been called to faithfully provide for you, is it easier or harder to respond to a spouse than if they were withholding from you all provision of what they are called to do? And I'm not just talking about like the sexual aspect of withholding. I'm talking about just in general, the whole relational avenue. If you laid it all on the table and you said, they are faithfully providing what they have said that they will provide to this relationship and to this marriage. Is it easier to respond to that or easier to respond to someone who says, I'm not giving you anything. And 
And so if we're talking about clinging to the Lord, we are responding to his faithful provision and going, I have seen your faithfulness. I'm like, I'm, I'm staying with you. I've seen your goodness. I know who you are. I trust your character. Holding on to him for life and purpose. You are the one who gives me meaning in what I am doing. You're the one directing and guiding my steps to the Lord. And there's also a choosing. This may be the one that we don't really love. Choosing the Lord's constraints or the boundaries that he provides because of who he is, because of his character, because of his provision, because of his grace, we don't do what he says we ought not to do. In the same way, if you are married, you are willfully, when you go down the aisle, you are willfully saying no to other options. You are adopting constraints upon yourself to say, I am choosing these boundaries because I think when you're, Getting married, because this is the best person that I think can, whatever. Or you just like Twitter paid and then later you go, oh, wow, there were other options. But you're married. And you're making a choice to cling to that person. So with the Lord, it, I am, oh, in clinging to him, there is a willful denial. I am choosing to say no to other options because of who he is. Because I'm choosing to cleave to him. And you can only choose to hold fast to him because he has already expressed, he's already died for you, he's already brought new life to you by his spirit. You, know, like, you could decide all day to cling to somebody who's not your spouse and you're not their spouse. Right? He has brought you in and you are choosing to respond by clinging to him in faith filled dependence and saying no to other alternatives. And we would be naive and foolish to think that there are no other alternatives or no other options to the Lord that are presented to us constantly. Are there any other worldviews or ideologies that are vying for your attention and your respect and your adoration? Are there any other systems in the world that are saying, this? we will provide you what you most, most want, and they disappoint? Absolutely there are. Are there other objects of worship that are glimmering and promising to provide what they cannot deliver that we would be able to choose rather than clinging to the Lord even though we may not have the answer to that circumstance yet? Absolutely there are. Every day, you and I face temptations to sacrifice or to leave the constraints of a right relationship clinging to the Lord to go after lesser things. But following Jesus means that I have my eyes set on him. I can't stop following him because I'm following him. Right? I can't take this turn yet because I'm following somebody. I can't go where you're going because I'm following Jesus. I gotta stay behind him. That's the nature of following. I'm holding fast to him. I may not know exactly where he's going, but I trust him. I'm going to stay with him. And then the third command. So we keep God's word, we cling to the Lord, and then the third thing he says is, uh, verse 11, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Love the Lord. 
It's not just emotions. It's not just, you're not just convincing your emotions to go, we got to have happy feelings about Jesus today. That's not, that's not what love is any more so than it is in marriage. Your marriage isn't just the, the, the sum of all of your emotions on a given day. Today I love my spouse because I feel it. Tomorrow, I don't know. That's not love. Nor is it love with the Lord. If it's just like, well, I will follow him as long as my heart feels happy today. That's not, that's not biblical Love, but what it is, it's not just emotion, but it is devotion. And I would say, again, using the illustration of marriage, staying married isn't the same as continuing to love and sacrifice and serve. You ought to stay married, but nobody wants a loveless marriage. Nobody wants a sacrificeless marriage. No one wants a serviceless marriage. No one wants a marriage on paper without it in practice. It's a total commitment to Him. And I want to just give you two two quick cross-references of Jesus speaking. John chapter 14 and verse 15. And if you want to stick a finger there, we'll, we'll circle back to John 14 in just a moment. But it's interesting, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, in other words, you'll do what I say. Which is kind of a, that's why I say they're interrelated commands. To love the Lord is to keep his word. It's loving the Lord or keeping his word demonstrates our love towards him, doing what he says. But then in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30, it's a restatement of Deuteronomy chapter 6. But a young man comes and asks Jesus what the most important commandment in the Old Testament is. And Jesus answered in verse 29, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And verse 30, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What is that? It's total commitment. Clinging to the Lord, staying with the Lord, but also committing everything to Him. Put, putting all of your chips in on Jesus. Not holding any in reserve. Total commitment. Not just emotion we're talking about, but devotion. Devoting to Him all of who you are. If you still have your finger in John 14... If we kept reading in John chapter 14, after verse 15, so if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Notice that in this, Jesus is promising himself and his provision to his people. 
You go like, that sounds like a really high, lofty three commands. I don't know how in the world anybody could do that. It hinges on verse 16 and verse 17, that he is the one who gives his spirit to his people to enable them to keep his commands. He gives his spirit in order to enable them to cling to him. He gives his spirit in order to help them love him with a total commitment. If you are trying to drum up these three things in your own strength, you will be miserably frustrated. But if these three things flow out of a response to who Jesus is, what he has done, and the Spirit of God he has placed inside of you, there is freedom for you to walk in these things. You're simply responding to the God who saved you through his Son. So the most most important first question is, are you following Jesus? Not asking you when you were seven years old at a Bible camp that you made it. I'm asking you, are you still following him? Is following the normal pattern of your life? It would be horrible... In the same way, that if I said on August 7th, 2009, Jason and I were married, and then if I were to stand before you today and say, well, I haven't seen her since, but I love her. Well, that's a long time to be married without seeing your spouse. Yeah, but if we said the vows. But no, I don't know if she's eating or drinking. I don't know if her needs are being provided for. I don't know where she lives. Am I married? On paper, I guess you could like, well, yeah, I guess you're there. If we would say that's ridiculous in marriage, how much more ridiculous would we say, I follow Jesus. Well, yeah, I prayed a prayer when I was seven. No, I don't know what his word says. I'm not really concerned to do what it says. I don't know what he wants for me to do in my life. I don't know how he would tell me to live in this. I'd ask you the same question. Does that mean, then, are you following Jesus? And if you're not, then can I plead with you today, follow him. Actively follow him. By keeping his word, clinging to him, and loving him with all that you have. On the other side of that, you might say, well, say I have no worry. I, like, I, don't, I couldn't even tell you which date I made a decision to follow Jesus, but... I love his word. I'm doing what he says. I'm following what he says. I don't care what date you could assign to it. I care. Are you following Jesus? By his spirit, are you walking behind him, following where he leads? And the best way you can articulate is that I love the Lord and I'm following him. I've chosen to take up my cross, and and, and I'm not just taking it up, putting it down. Where are we going? Lifetime. That's the call. It's a lifetime of following him. Not a surveying and saying, well, that's that's a really good cross, and I think if somebody picked that up, they would probably make him a disciple. And so, yeah, I agree. That's what makes a disciple a disciple. That's what makes a follower a follower. No, are are you following Jesus? Actively pursuing him.
going where he goes, doing what he says to do, saying what he says to say? Is that a concern of your heart that you belong to him and desire to do what he calls you to do? If there's no burden to hear or to do what Jesus says, again, I urge you to ask the question. If there's, if, there's no, if there's no movement in your heart whatsoever towards the thing of Jesus, it doesn't matter what's in your background. I would ask you, do you think that means you're following him? And if not, today's a great day to start following him. 